Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your body-possessing spirit, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes Possessed Pals, Black Horror, and Cosmetic Peril. Follow me into this shoddy-looking plastic surgery hospital so we can transform our bodies on the cheap while I talk about some movies. Number 1, Demon Wind, 1990, directed by Charles Philip Moore. Corey asks his girlfriend Elaine and a bunch of their friends to accompany him to his parents' farmhouse after his dad commits suicide. A gas station cafe combo owner warns them not to go. Once Corey and friends reach the farmhouse, they realize it's corrupted by supernatural forces. They try to leave, but a rolling fog keeps transporting them back to the farmhouse. Demons start killing and possessing the friends. Corey and Elaine find Corey's grandma's diary that contains light spells and tells them where to find two demon-killing daggers. More friends start turning into demons. The gas station cafe combo owner arrives at the farmhouse and reveals he's a worshipper of demons. The owner and all the demons that are present combine into a super demon. Corey and Elaine are the only ones left to fight. They use the spell to transform Cory. Cory tries to fend off the super demon. The demon starts beating Cory, but Elaine finishes reading the last spell in the book, which defeats the demon. They then go back to the gas station cafe combo to kill one more demon. The demons and their followers are the killers. At least that's my understanding. Demon Wind is a wacky lovable mess. I don't even know where to begin with this one. How about Corey's gaze? Corey's gaze? Yeah, what I'm referring to is the way he stares at everything. Corey had the power to make me burst out laughing with a simple glance. A character looking at things shouldn't be funny. For some reason, Corey's eyes are comedic gold. Corey was played by Eric Larson. His acting is bizarre. He comes off as a weird alien. Maybe Larson's acting is perfect and incredible. Corey does transform into what looks like an alien vampire during the climax. Was Corey transformed or was he simply revealing his true form? I burst out laughing the second vampire alien Corey made his debut. I thought Corey's gaze was hilarious before he became an egg-headed alien man with no eyebrows, so obviously I found it even funnier post-transformation. How's everyone else's acting? Well, not great. Eric Larson's Corey does make everyone else look a lot better by comparison. 
There's a duo that was amazing every time they were on screen that consisted of Steven Quadro, a dude that looks like a Kevin Bacon impersonator, as Chuck, and Jack Franchinito as Stacy. Chuck and Stacy are two buds. Chuck is a magician who is also a master at spin kicks. He makes a dub up here in Crap on Dell, a meathead Fred Jones looking dude that reminded me a lot of Chad Radwell from the show Scream Queens. Dell tosses a can at Chuck, who masterfully and majestically kicks the can back at Dell, landing a sweet headshot. Quick Dell tangent before more on the buddy duo. Dell, when referring to his girlfriend, says she looks good enough to eat. Weird thing to say, I know. Dell ends up munched on by a possessed demon version of said girlfriend later on in the movie. She doesn't say he looks good enough to eat before sinking her teeth into him, but when Dell's decapitated head is flaunted in front of his still living friends, the possessed friend who's holding it does at the time say he was good enough to eat. I'm glad that came back full circle. Back to Chuck and Stacy. Not only is Chuck a magical kung fu master, Stacy and Chuck are also strapped. As soon as things go south, they bust out the guns. A topless older woman who's obviously a demon tries to coerce them into leaving the safety of the farmhouse. They see right through Demon Mama, but still journey outside anyway to kick some demon tuchus. They bloody a lot of demons, and Chuck even removes a fiend's head from its shoulders with a spectacular spin kick, but unfortunately the duo is overrun by the hordes from hell. Their buddy demon fighting efforts must have been the inspiration for the show Supernatural. I've never seen any of that show. Should I? There is more fog than wind in Demon Wind. Should have been called Demon Fog. Besides the hamtastic acting and over-the-top goofiness, what else did I enjoy in Demon Wind? The sound effects. Oh boy, the sound effects. I don't think any new Foley was done for the movie. I recognize so many stock sound effects. I'd say a good 60% of the sound effects used didn't match up with what was happening on screen. The same sounds were stacked on top of each other. My favorites were the sound used when people fell down and the golden eye silence pistol shot sound that was used for some punches. Two butts are shown, one bare booty when Corey talks about a dream he had where he was hanging out naked at the gas station cafe combo he ends up at. Weird dream, Corey. The other behind belongs to Elaine who pulls down her pants to moon Corey in the cafe to cheer him up. It doesn't work though. He responds to seeing his girlfriend's butt with the phrase, a moon for the misbegotten. I think we should all respond to seeing butts in the future with that phrase. The practical effects work in Demon Wind is stellar. The demon and gore makeup is gross and awesome. Big Bad Demon looks especially nasty and has jacked goat legs. One girl is killed by a cow skull that captures and reels her in with a long monster tongue. The cow skull then chomps on her head until she dies as all of her friends watch and do nothing to help. The only practical effects I didn't dig were Corey's alien form makeup and prosthetics, which seemed totally unnecessary. Besides practical effects, CGI was used for some magic stuff, like the demons combining into one and the big demon shooting blasts from his hands. The CGI is some of the worst I've ever seen. It's so bad that I loved it. Is Demon Wind basically an Evil Dead ripoff? Pfft, what? No. 
Demon Wind's events don't start because someone reads something in a language they don't understand. There's no Necronomicon-like book. Friends that go to a secluded cabin-like location don't start turning into deadites. Wait, all of those things happen. Ash didn't turn into a vampire alien in Evil Dead though, so obviously Demon Wind is completely different. Demon Wind is a fantastic, insanity-filled thrill ride. It's a bad good masterpiece. It turns out a sequel was planned, but never came to fruition. Dag, I wanted more. Number 2, Blackula, 1972, directed by William Crane. Mamuwaldi and his wife Luva have a drink with Dracula. Dracula's cool with slavery, which doesn't sit well with his guests. Dracula turns Mamuwaldi into Blackula. Blackula is locked in a coffin in a secret room where Luva is also left to die. About 200 years pass, interior decorators buy Dracula's estate and take items including Blackula's coffin with them to Los Angeles. Blackula is freed and hungry for blood. Blackula meets Tina, a woman that looks exactly like his deceased wife. Initially, he scares her but wins her affection with his vampire charm. A man named Dr. Thomas has come in contact with a bunch of Blackula's victims. The victims start coming back as vampires. Dr. Thomas realizes Mama Waldi is Blackula. Dr. Thomas and the police take out a bunch of vampires but can't find Blackula's coffin. Tina leads them to the chemical factory where Blackula and his coffin are. A cop kills Tina, so Blackula turns her. After Tina gets staked, Blackula kills a few more cops, then walks into the sun to die. Dracula, Blackula, their brood, and a cop are the killers. Most of the death is technically Dracula's fault. Mama Waldi didn't want to be turned into a vampire. The cop straight up takes aim and murders Tina though. I've said it before and I'll never stop saying it. You can't spell incompetent without C-O-P. William Crane directed Blackula. A lot of films from the exploitation era were actually directed by white dudes, so it's awesome that Crane got to direct. He wasn't brought back for the sequel, Scream, Blackula, Scream, but did another exploitation horror movie called Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde. Blackula follows the typical vampire story formula. A vampire from a distant land travels by boat to a new place, bites some people, entrances a woman, and perishes in the end. In Blackula, Dracula exists but is ultimately replaced by Blackula, and Van Helsing is instead Dr. Gordon Thomas. Both main characters are played by black actors as well as Blackula's love interest Tina. William Marshall played Mama Waldi aka Blackula, his on-screen presence is fantastic. His vampire makeup isn't stellar and the hair added to his face comes off more werewolf than vampire, but his acting made me forget about how ridiculous the makeup looked. Thalmus Razulala played Dr. Thomas. He was also solid. Most of the acting in Blackula is great. Vanetta McGee played Tina and Luva, and her acting was a bit weird. I'm pretty sure she's supposed to be under Blackula's thrall though, which would explain the awkwardness. Black representation seemed mostly positive in Blackula. The opposite can be said for gay representation. Blackula's coffin is found and brought to Los Angeles by two gay men. They're Blackula's first victims. Whenever those characters are brought up, derogatory terms were used for them. The other F word pops up a lot in older horror. 
Blackula is filled with constant pulled punches and shoddily cut together fights. My favorite action sequence is when a man is about to break a vase over Mama Waldy's head, throws it over his head out of frame, and then William Marshall pretends that he was hit with the vase. The vase head bash doesn't come close to looking believable. That kind of stuff made the fight scenes a lot more enjoyable for me. My favorite kill has to be when Blackula grabs a cop, who's wearing a motorcycle helmet, then lightly taps the cop's protected noggin against a brick wall behind him while letting out a beautiful Nyah! When the cop's buds come to his aid, he's dead. There's barely any gore in Blackula, there's a lot of implied neck biting, but from what I recall it's never actually shown and the fake bites never sell. After miming a neck bite, blood was added to the biter's fangs. Blackula is rated PG, which explains a lot, a PG exploitation movie. Dr. Thomas is on the case of the strange neck bites. It only takes him seeing two victims to lock in that it's vampires. When he digs up a corpse which pops out of its coffin all undead and hungry for blood, he's like, yep, vampires. I hate it when I'm right. He must have had some run-ins with the fanged fiends in the past given his nonchalant attitude when discovering they're behind the murders he's been investigating. It's vampires. Again. I dogged on Blackula's vampire makeup, but compared to him and Dracula, all the other vampires look terrible. They look more like badly done reptile people than vampires. Blackula's score is filled with 70s funk, which I always enjoy. There's a character I need to mention named Skillet. He's played by G2 Kumbuka. Skillet has two brief moments in the movie where he joins Mamu Waldi, Tina, Dr. Thomas, and Mrs. Thomas at a club. Every time Skillet shows up, Mamu Waldi bails. Skillet feels like an actual dude. I wish he played a bigger part in the movie. Blackula isn't a masterfully crafted film, but it's definitely a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot more than Nosferatu and the 1931 version of Dracula. Check out Blackula to get your vampire fix. The Hughes Corporation played the club band. I didn't recognize them from the songs they played in the movie, but they went on to do the song Rock the Boat. Yes, that rock the boat that you're thinking of. Number 3, Scare Package, 2019, directed by Courtney Andujar, Hilary Andujar, Anthony Cousins, Emily Hagens, Aaron B. Kuntz, Chris McEnroy, Noah Segan, and Baron Vaughn. A guy named Mike, who never gets to stick around and be in horror movies, sees a girl trip and kill herself with shears. He then accidentally kills the girl's friend who's standing behind him when he pulls the shears out. Mike catches a ride home with a video store owner named Chad. Chad goes to work and hires a new employee named Han. A regular tells him about a horror movie where lots of people die in the woods. The owner puts on a tape about werewolf men's rights activists. This is followed by a tale about women who turn into skull-faced monsters after licking a lollipop. Han watches a tape about a man that's killed and comes back as a ghost. Another story about a killer that couldn't be killed is brought up. Han then kidnaps Chad and takes him to a lab where a bunch of stereotypical horror characters are. Scientists are studying the effects of a slasher, the Devil's Lake Impaler, causing people to randomly trip in cars not to start when the slasher is near them. The Impaler escapes and starts killing people. The stoner accidentally kills a girl. Joe Bob Briggs shows up, helps out, but ends up dead. Chad sacrifices himself. The stoner and the final girl are the only ones left. The stoner dives and the final girl drives off. The impaler pops up in the back seat of the car. Final girl leaves the car. Mike shows up and blows up the vehicle to save the day. 
Mike, a friend with an axe, a friend that turns out to be a masked killer, men wearing black, an unkillable killer, the Devil's Lake Impaler, and a stoner are the killers. I think there were a lot of killers in this movie. I didn't even go into detail about some of the shorts because explaining what happens in them would just make everything more confusing to follow in a simple summary format. Scare Package is one of the best anthologies I have ever seen. It might be the best. What? How is that possible? Isn't it a Shudder original? Shudder strikes out about 80% of the time, but that other 20% is made up of home runs. Baseballs. How can Scare Package be better than Trick or Treat though? Here's a hot take for you that I think is actually more of a freezing take. Trick or Treat isn't an anthology. All of the segments were written and directed by Michael Doherty. By definition, Trick or Treat is technically an anthology, but I believe an anthology has to have different directors and writers to be classified as a true anthology. Scare Package blew me away. I only disliked two segments. My least favorite by far was M-I-S-T-E-R, which not only wins the award for the worst name ever, but worst short of the anthology, Men's rights activists turn into werewolves and are taken out by a satanic cult dude. Even joking about men's rights activism is cringe. They're up there with the most pathetic groups of all time. Jocelyn DeBoer plays the wife character in it. She wrote and starred in Greener Grass, both the short and feature version. The feature didn't have enough gas, but she's hilarious. Maybe Mr. would have been decent if she wrote it. The next short that didn't do much for me was So Much To Do. The premise is a ghost has unfinished business. He needs to see the finale of a show. He possesses a woman's body. She isn't caught up yet and hates spoilers. She has to exercise him from her body by force. It's a fun concept, but the way it's presented is overly confusing and complicated. I do love the idea of a person turning into a ghost because they have mundane, unfinished business. Spookily feeding a fish paying the bills, and returning a book to the library. I like the concept, but the execution and presentation were lackluster. I also didn't love Girls' Night Out of Body. Girls steal an evil lollipop, give it a lick, turn into skull-faced monsters, and kill a guy that was stalking them. I, whatever. Come to think of it, I guess I liked so much more to do, more than Girls' Night Out of Body, because so much to do at least tried to do something fresh. This is an anthology. Every piece isn't going to be spectacular. Barring those three shorts, everything else is fantastic. The video store framing device is perfect. Jeremy King played Chad, and even though his acting didn't wow me, I found him endearing and great in the role. His character is a knockoff Joe Bob Briggs. Confession time, I only recently heard about Joe Bob Briggs. I didn't really know who he was until his resurgence on Shudder. Another confession, I haven't been tuning into The Last Drive-In. Yeah, I know, I probably should. I say I liked horror starting in my high school days. Even when I wasn't big into horror, I knew who Elvira was, so I'm surprised I had never heard of Joe Bob Briggs until recently. I'll give his show a shot eventually. Anyway, the video store frame is funny. The loser regular, the new employee, I loved it. All the rest of the shorts are stunning. If I had to put them in order where the first one is my favorite, it's tough. Maybe One Time in the Woods, Horror Hypothesis, The Night He Came Back Again, Part 4, The Final Kill, and then Cold Open. 
These four are top-notch. They are packed with meta-humor, fantastic practical effects, laugh-out-loud moments, campy but perfect acting. I absolutely loved these shorts. I could go further into what I liked, which normally I would do, but I don't want to spoil any more specifics than I already have. Use a shutter-free trial or even buy a month to check out Scare Package. It's an amazing anthology with barely any misfires. The comedy that lands is laugh out loud good, and you practical effects fans will be horny for this one. Uh, excited for this one. Number 4, Return to Horror High, 1987, directed by Bill Froelich. A film crew is shooting a movie about a massacre that happened at Crippen High School. After the lead quits to work on another project, a former Crippen High student and now cop named Stephen Blake is given the role. The principal of the school is on hand as an advisor. Steve grows close to his co-star Cassie. People are being picked off during production. Steve sees a picture of his old girlfriend Kathy, which the principal has since she's his daughter. She disappeared after sharing an intimate night with Steve. The principal says she's at graduate school. More people die. Steve and Cassie find severed heads and a secret basement classroom that's filled with corpses from the original massacre. They're attacked by the janitor who turns out to actually be the principal who killed his daughter Kathy and other students after finding out Kathy was pregnant with Steve's child. Steve pins the principal to a wall with a javelin. Outside the school, the film crew made it look like more people died as a publicity stunt for the movie. They send the police into the school. The crew then takes off. The police shoot the principal a bunch. Later on, we see Arthur, the writer of the movie, typing a sequel with a picture of the principal on his desk. A bleeding figure approaches, who Arthur addresses as Dad. The principal is the killer. I tried to make the plot of this movie sound as unconvoluted as possible. It's all over the place. To get right to the point, I don't think Return to Horror High is good enough to warrant a recommendation, but if you do find yourself watching it, here's a tip. There are no flashbacks to the original massacre. Knowing that will definitely help keep things straight. Return to Horror High jumps from the end back to the beginning. It then jumps between the fake movie and what's really going on behind the scenes. I don't know how the most boring parts ended up being the fake movie. Whenever it's fake movie time, Return to Horror High tries its damnedest to put the audience right to sleep. Basically, we'll see a scene, then the producer will do something sleazy, which rightfully annoys the main actress. There's one joke that I loved in Return to Horror High surrounding this. Sleazy producer wants more boobage in his movie. A very frustrated Cassie says something like, What are you gonna do, put ice on my nips? Then a dude with an ice bucket comes on screen and promptly turns around. I really enjoyed that gag. One other funny thing happened, I think. I can't remember what it was, so maybe that was the only standout goof. The gore? The kills? That reminds me of the other funny bit. It's not that funny, so lower your expectations. The killer pulls a victim into a classroom. You then see a shadow of an axe swing down in a door window, which is followed by the shadow of a head flying up. That's my favorite kill, and it has no gore. The other kills? Boring. Most of the deaths are off screen. There's one that could have been cool where a big ol' fan chops up a dude, but instead of seeing the man hit the fan, there's a mediocre match cut to a bucket of fake blood being thrown against a wall. The kills stink. What is the best part of the movie? It's going to shock you. Are you ready? Here goes. The best part of the entirety 
of Return to Horror High is Maureen McCormick's performance. Who? You know who Maureen McCormick is. Maybe the Zoomers don't. None other than Marsha Brady from the Brady Bunch. I know you've seen it. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Remember? Now that I think about it, I'm a Jan trying to be a Marsha. Maureen McCormick plays Officer Tyler. She's a goofball cop. Her performance is phenomenal. I'd watch her, Officer Tyler, do anything. She eats a chili dog while at the crime scene filled with bodies. She ends up covered in blood after slipping in the pools that litter the halls. When I saw her being a complete weirdo in her bloody uniform, I thought to myself, this better not awaken anything in me. I must have thought Marsha was a cutie when I watched the Brady Bunch as a child, but I honestly don't remember anything about that show besides Jan pelting Marsha in the face with a football. I just looked it up. Peter threw the ball. I guess I don't remember anything. I feel like I watched a lot of Brady Bunch as a kid, so I don't know how that's possible. I don't know why my brain would purge such important information. I'm not sure how I've rambled on this much and talked more about the Brady Bunch than the actual movie before bringing up the fact that George Clooney is in Return to Horror High. He's the first death. It's a boring death, but hey look, George Clooney, wow! Return to Horror High was his movie debut. His acting is fine for the minuscule part. The other acting, the sleazy dudes are sleazy, the creepy dudes are creepy. Brandon Hughes played Stephen Blake. I wasn't a fan of him, but that's probably the writing. Stephen Blake is a boring character. Lori Lethin, the sister in Bloody Birthday, played Cassie. She was fine. George Clooney, Maureen McCormick, and the ice gag are the only highlights of Return to Horror High. I recommend checking out pretty much any other high school slasher instead. It has a fantastic premise, but doesn't come anywhere near to capitalizing on it. Number 5, Yummy, 2019, directed by Lars Damwasu. Michael drives his girlfriend Allison and her mom to a sketchy plastic surgery hospital in Eastern Europe. Allison wants a breast reduction. Once at the hospital, Michael and a skeevy assistant named Daniel have a hand in accidentally releasing a zombie. Zombies quickly overrun the hospital. Allison blows up a guy by accidentally flipping a switch on a liposuction machine. There are two Eastern European doctors, Dr. K and Janja, who appear to be behind the whole zombie thing. Janja takes out Dr. K after he's been infected. Michael is bitten by a zombie lizard thing. The military are shooting anyone that tries to leave the hospital. Jonja places a zombie in a biting position and baits Daniel into getting bitten after he asks for hush money. Daniel kills Jonja. Allison, Michael, and Daniel are the only ones still alive. Since no one knows about Daniel's bite, Michael helps Allison and Daniel escape by raising them to a high ladder. Daniel then begins to turn into a zombie, so Allison backed a car into him. Michael miraculously makes it out alive and ends up on the road. He tries to flag down Allison, but she runs him over thinking he's a zombie. This causes her to lose control of the car. Allison crashes into a tree and dies. Zombies, Allison, the military, Janja, and a car accident are the killers. Daniel is a real piece of work, but he only kills Janja after she tricks him into being bitten. As much as I like Janja, she needed to be dealt with or she probably would have ended up killing everyone else. 
Dr. K wasn't even showing signs of changing when she put an axe into the back of his head. He was trying to find a cure. Yummy isn't the word I'd use to describe this movie. Undercooked or bland seem much more fitting. Will there ever be another good zombie movie? Is it possible or is there nothing new to say when it comes to zombies? Yummy has the same beats we've seen a million times, only this time there's a bad boy trying to steal a sad boy's girlfriend. I don't like bad boy Daniel or sad boy Michael. Michael is the better character, he doesn't want Allison to have surgery in the shady hospital they arrive at, and tries his damnedest to save her once he finds the first zombie. He's still a pathetic character, but he's the only character with any hint of depth. Allison doesn't even make sense. One second she loves Michael and the next she has nothing but disdain for the man. Her hatred towards Michael that sporadically pops up during the undead events doesn't make any sense. Does Yummy do anything new? I'm glad you asked. Flaming then frozen penis. What? Flaming then frozen penis. A throwaway character had a penis enlargement operation done. He's alone with the lady and given the situation they decide to bang. It doesn't go well. Mr. New Dick's member ends up engulfed in flames after some type of flammable jelly is applied. It doesn't just ignite on its own. The lady accidentally drops a lit match on it. I don't recall why a match was even lit. It wasn't dark where they were. They were bathed in bright blue and red light. That's the lighting setup for 80% of the movie and it makes every set piece look exactly the same. Almost the entire movie takes place in a sterile looking hospital. The least they could have done to shake things up is some interesting lighting. Where was I? Oh yeah, flaming the frozen penis. Flammable jelly plus lit match equals the human torch if the only part of his body that flamed on was his dick. The fire is eventually put out by a fire extinguisher. Nothing all that wacky there until the head of the trouser snake cracks off since the extinguishing of the flames froze the poor pecker. I don't think fire extinguishers freeze what's sprayed, I'm no expert though. Let's see, will a fire extinguisher freeze a snake? Who has been googling will a fire extinguisher freeze a snake? It was one of the top options. Snake, penis, close enough. A spray from a CO2 fire extinguisher may be enough to cool off the cold-blooded creature so it becomes lethargic, allowing you to remove it safely while it's less aware of its surroundings. Sounds like the worst case scenario of having your drunk sprayed with the fire extinguisher's drowsy dick. The elemental genital assault did entertain me. It's rare for a movie to even show a ding-dong, so having one that ends up on fire and frozen isn't something I've ever seen. Yummy isn't. The practical gore effects are fantastic, but everything else is a bore. Don't bother checking out Yummy. Number 6, Ganja and Hess, 1973, directed by Bill Gunn. Dr. Hess Green is studying Merthians, an ancient blood-drinking nation. His assistant George threatens suicide. After being talked down, George kills Hess with a Merthian ritual dagger, then shoots and kills himself. Hess comes back to life with a hunger for blood. He starts killing for it. George's wife Ganja shows up. She falls in love with Hess. She eventually finds her husband's corpse, but still marries Hess, who uses the dagger to transform her. Ganja seduces and kills a man, then disposes the body with Hess's help. Hess then decides to change his ways. He goes back to church. Afterwards, he kills himself by standing in front of a cross. Ganja then sees the man she killed running back to the mansion. 
George, Hess, and Ganja are the killers. Sure, Hess came back to life and so did Ganja's victim, but they were still dead at some point. To start things off, I didn't enjoy Ganja and Hess. This movie is not for me. I'm not a big fan of experimental films. I haven't seen Under the Skin in over five years, but I remember disliking that also. I didn't like Tetsuo the Iron Man. Experimental movies aren't for me. That being said, I can definitely see the merit of Ganja and Hess. It's a beautifully shot film with a lot of captivating imagery. The performances in it are top-notch. Dwayne Jones played Hess, Marlene Clark played Ganja, and Bill Gunn played George. All of them are incredible in the roles. There are a lot of candid feeling conversations in the film that add to the realness of their performances. Since I enjoyed the acting and how the film was shot, what are my issues? Ganja and Hez struggles with pacing. There are constant scenes that overstay their welcome. I don't need to see 20 minutes of a church service. I don't need to see George brush his teeth while in a bathtub before exiting it and deciding to shoot himself. I never need to see someone rinse out their mouth with bath water ever again. The sound design is all over the place. Sometimes there's a cacophony of sound drowning out what's happening on screen. Sometimes songs are played on top of each other. Gore? There's some gore. The goriest scene in the movie is when Hess cuts a man's neck open and blood starts to spurt out. It looks good. Ganja and Hess isn't a movie that's about gore though, which is completely fine. I did not go into the movie with the right mindset. I was expecting a highbrow vampire movie, not an experimental one. What led up to the creation of Ganja and Hess? Blackula. Blackula was so financially successful that Hollywood was chomping at the bit for another money printing black vampire movie. After failed attempts to get some other films made, Bill Gunn landed the opportunity to make a black vampire movie. He didn't want to make schlock, which is why Ganja and Hess is the way that it is. I can definitely see the importance of this film when considering black film history. It just didn't entertain me. Instead of feeling like your average movie, it feels more like documentary footage that you'd expect to have interview recordings played over. The movie begins with the narration of Hess's chauffeur, who's also the pastor of the church at the beginning and end of the movie. Only the first few minutes are narrated by the pastor. I'm not averse to slow movies, but they need to have tension continuously building towards a grand finale. I wouldn't even say Ganja and Hess has a traditional climax. I didn't even realize Hess killed himself by standing in front of a cross during my viewing. Sure, the characters were immortal and hungry for blood, but Ganja and Hess purposefully strays away from being a vampire movie. The word vampire isn't even in the film. They were still able to walk in the sunlight. I was a bit tuned out by the time the cross suicide happened, sure, but other vampire rules hadn't applied earlier in the film. Do I think Ganja and Hess warrants an almost two hour runtime? Nope. The mundane is lingered on a bit too long for my taste. I don't recommend checking out Ganja and Hess if you are solely looking for entertainment. It's an important part of black cinema though, so if you are looking for a film to give you more insight into early black cinema, it's perfect. I'm just not a big fan of experimental movies. 7. Berserk, 1989 onwards, created by Kentaro Miyuda. After years of hearing about how amazing the Berserk manga is, I finally decided to make the plunge. Manga is expensive, y'all. 
I'm the kind of person who desires physical books in my hands, and since you can't pirate physical books, not that I'm a digital comics thief, my wallet is being hit hard by my new medieval demon obsession. I think once I'm caught up, it's going to cost me around 400 dollaroonies. What the hell? That's crazy. I know. Berserk is currently 40 volumes, I'm not exactly sure if the story has met a conclusion. With some googling, I see that it's been on hiatus for years, so I'm pretty sure it's not finished. I'm not willing to look too far into it and spoil it for myself though. I won't be spoiling it for you elegant listeners either. I'll talk about some of the contents of the books, but I won't provide any specifics regarding plot and whatnot. One thing that I could do without in my medieval demon-filled manga is sexual violence. Berserk does include it, and given the time period and demons, you could argue that it makes sense, but as I've grown older, I've realized sexual violence is almost never necessary for a story. If you're thinking about making a possible fringe case for it, I said almost never necessary. You know what I do want in my medieval demon-filled manga? Lots of sick-ass brutal fights. Berserk has way more of that than the former, so that's perfect for me. Berserk starts off with Guts in the present time. He's the BFS wielding lone swordsman. Japan loves them some giant swords. I personally have a weakness for them also. Whenever I play Dark Souls games, I always end up with a character wielding two gigantic blades. After giving me a taste of the present day where Guts is shown all alone with certain wounds like a missing arm and I'm assuming an eye, Berserk sent me back to learn about how Guts came to be. This makes me constantly worry about if Guts is going to have a really bad time in his newest battle. Is he gonna lose a limb or worse, his friends this time? I know he ends up damaged and alone. Berserk makes you truly care about the characters, there is some unnecessary nudity at times, but I will still give Berserk kudos for giving the prominent lady character actual armor and not the typical bikini armor that pops up in a lot of anime. Berserk's art is gritty, there are some fantastical elements and anime style at times, but the art never goes full generic anime and sticks to representing its medieval influences perfectly. The demon designs heavily reminded me of Junji Ito's work that was coming out around the same time, which means the designs are grotesque and superb. I'm addicted to Berserk now, and I'm fiending for more volumes to come in the mail. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer, 74 Possessed Pals, Black Horror, and Cosmetic Peril. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and or tell your friend about the podcast. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website. Episode 75 will be out on July 5th. Until then, remember to always listen if a creepy old man at a gas station tells you to turn the hell around and leave a spooky place.